Welcome to Serial from Farmerama. This is episode two. Nature hates uniformity. Belhaven Community Garden, just outside my hometown of Dunbar, on the east coast of Scotland. One sunny spring day, volunteers are sowing a tiny plot of wheat. It's part of an initiative from Scotland the Bread called Soil to Slice. The goal is to engage communities in cereal production, bringing the fields literally to their doorsteps. But it's also part of ongoing research into how different wheat varieties fare in different parts of the country. It's one of the ways people across the UK are seeking to answer the question, in the face of climate and health crises, what seeds should we be sowing? In the last episode, we explored how, over the last century or so, our bread has changed beyond recognition. Well, it's a change that ripples up and down the production chain. The industrial food system strives to maximise output while minimising human input, and that requires scalable, uniform processes. Uniform processes that require uniform ingredients. Just as our bread has changed, so have our seeds. The seeds that grow into the plants, that yield the grain, that's ground into the flour, that makes the bread. Our seeds have been transformed as well. But as with our bread, it wasn't a sudden change. It was a series of incremental steps, each of which had its own logic. Today, wheat covers an estimated 218 million hectares of the planet, more than any other food crop. World trade in wheat outstrips that of all other crops combined. So how did we get to this point? Around 10,000 years ago, Hunter-gatherers in the Middle East collected and ate the seeds of wild grasses, wild wheats. At some point, they sowed a few of those seeds. They planted fields and tended them, and harvested the grain. There's debate around the question of whether farming enabled nomadic people to settle, or whether they had to settle in order to tend and protect the fields they planted. In other words, as Ali Ragosa asks in her book, Restoring Heritage Grains, did people domesticate wheat, or did wheat domesticate people? Either way, the domestication of wheat sparked the birth of agriculture. The earliest cultivated forms were what we now call einkorn and emmer. The sickle-shaped region in the Middle East, where wheat was first domesticated and agriculture emerged, is now known as the Fertile Crescent. After about 8000 BC, domesticated wheat spread from the Fertile Crescent. By 3000 BC, it had reached the British Isles. Those early wheat fields contained a huge amount of genetic diversity. Each plant would have been slightly different from the others. They were what we now refer to as populations. So population is a mixture of a number of varieties. Rupert Dunn from Torth Atir Peasant Bakery in southwest Wales. So every year you'll get cross-pollination when the wheat is flowering. It's a very special time in the field. Three to five percent of those varieties, as I understand it, will cross-pollinate. So every year we'll, we'll have a new variety emerging in the field. As people sowed, tended and harvested in their local areas, year after year after year, those wheat populations diverged from each other. Plants that were suited to the area's climate, soil and landscape 
and maybe also to the local tastes and cuisines, thrived and reproduced. Others died out. The genetic makeup of populations in different places became distinct. So there's a historical, a cultural tradition to this local population. John Letts, a farmer and seed breeder based near Oxford. And over the years, those lines within it that are better adapted are going to produce more seed, just natural selection and evolution. So those that were better adapted to the soil, to the weather, to the climate, to the way they were harvested, to factors that we can't even dream about ecologically because it's so complicated, they've adapted to the local area. So they're growing these and saving the seed every year, so they're perpetuating that genetic diversity from year to year. So you can call that a population, but because it's been grown in one area for a long time, it's a land race, quite unique to that area, might have a unique flavor, might have a unique color, makes unique bread, beer, whatever. It's local. So for millennia, we grew land races, locally adapted, genetically diverse populations of cereal plants. Then, in the 19th century... So someone comes into the field in the 1830s, and he says, oh, your crop's very messy. It's hundreds of different varieties in this field. And what you really want is uniformity. And it started in about 1830s in a big way by a guy named Jean Le Couteur, a guy from Jersey. So what happened over the next 30, 40 years is a scientist with a genuine desire to improve those crops would go in and they'd select maybe two or three ears out of this field of 500, take those away. And all that genetic diversity in that field was then milled up into the last loaf perhaps even 2,000 years of genetic history and evolution was lost. And the three years they'd select were pulled out and purified, and they would maybe grow one ear, you know, each year, take the best ear out of each plant and, and so on until you have pure varieties. And there was a big sea change shift in that, I think, in the early 1900s when they started to hybridize wheat. People had played with hybridization 50 years before, but they never produced any real commercial varieties from that. So they were pure line selections. In 1906, 1908, they released the first two commercially successful hybrid wheats, Little Joss and Victor. And that was to improve baking quality because the bakers wanted high gluten. And so they crossed in wheats like Red Fife and all these really high gluten North American ones. A hybrid is created when two different varieties of a plant are deliberately cross-pollinated. It means you can select specific characteristics or traits from different varieties and concentrate them in a new variety. Those traits might be things like gluten content, disease resistance, height or yield. And although people did experiment with hybridization in the 19th century, it really accelerated in the 1960s, during the so-called Green Revolution a period of rapid and momentous global change in agriculture. And then through intensive selection, one year, one plant, one year, one plant, one year, one plant, for seven or eight generations, you get rid of as much genetic diversity as possible, and you end up with that monocultural modern hybrid wheat. Modern wheat. One of the key figures in its development was an American agronomist named Norman Borlaug, also known as the father of the Green Revolution. He was passionate about relieving hunger around the world, and he believed the way to do that was to make farming more intensive. The idea was that if farms moved away from growing lots of different crops and instead got really good at growing a single crop, that would improve their efficiency and increase their yields. Borlaug and his team crossed thousands of wheats from around the world to develop a hybrid variety that was high-yielding and apparently disease-resistant. 
It was specifically bred to respond to the synthetic nitrogen-based fertilizers that had recently become available, and that meant it could be grown in areas that weren't naturally suited to it. But heavy use of nitrogen-based fertilizer increases the chance of lodging, which is when plants topple over in the wind or rain and rot, meaning their grain goes to waste. So, Borlaug's wheat had dwarfing genes, which gave it a much shorter, thicker stem and reduced the risk of lodging. For comparison, before the Green Revolution, wheat grew to around four feet or even taller. Modern varieties stand at around two feet tall. That also means the plant puts more of its energy into producing grain instead of stalk. So, under the right conditions, modern wheat varieties are very high yielding. And they're uniform, a genetic monoculture. So those modern varieties are the result of, really, you could say, at least 150 years of intensive genetic selection to get rid of diversity so that every plant in the field is genetically identical, genetically pure. Now, there might be a little touch of genetic diversity in there because, you know, nature has its way of hiding a bit of diversity from us. But in almost every significant visual kind of morphological genetic trait, they are uniform. They are clones of each other. Identical plants have advantages. In some ways, they're easier to manage and easier to harvest. They're the same height. Their grain ripens at the same time. They fit more easily into a mechanised farm system. And if you're selling into a commodity market that requires uniformity, their grain is suited to that. But... Because every plant in the field is identical, they're genetically uniform. Nature hates uniformity. Disease comes in, a pest comes in, boom, you lose the whole, you know, the rust sweeps through the field. You can almost see it moving through the field day by day. Identical plants have identical vulnerabilities and they have identical needs. They compete for the same resources at the same times. And if you're trying to squeeze plants together, which are identical, which are occupying exactly the same niche, then you have to have large amounts of inputs in order to make it work. That's the late Professor Martin Wolfe, speaking at the Oxford Real Farming Conference back in 2011. You've got to have lots of nutrients uh, available added into the system. You've got to have pest disease weed control in place. And in many cases, uh, you have to have water as well. And these these additions, these inputs are totally dependent on the stable environment, resources being available, and of course, uh, cheap energy. A stable environment, available resources, cheap energy. Is this ringing alarm bells? I've heard several analogies for modern wheat varieties. I've heard them described as addicts, dependent on getting their fix, or as being on life support, hooked up to an intravenous drip or as being attached by an umbilical cord to petrochemical inputs. All of these analogies make the same point. Yes, in ideal conditions, with the right synthetic fertilisers in the right doses at the right times, the right mix of herbicides, pesticides and fungicides, the right weather, the right temperatures. In those conditions, modern varieties do fine. They yield really well. But without those ideal conditions, they're extremely vulnerable. They can't look after themselves. As we adapt to climate change, can we afford to rely on that artificial life support system? 
Those modern varieties, the modern hybrids, dwarfs, they were bred to respond to nitrogen. They need high nitrogen fertilizer. They've been selected to be short so that all that energy they capture from the sun goes into grain, not into straw. But that means they've also stunted the root system. And that's because that's where you put your fertilizer. So why should they develop deep root systems? This is a waste of plants' energy. They're so short, they can't compete against weeds, so they need herbicides. And they're also not very good at forming these connections with root fungi, mycorrhiza. So they don't work in sustainable systems, in low input systems with no nitrogen. Those modern varieties cannot be grown in that sustainable way. So if modern wheat is incompatible with sustainable farming, what's the alternative? John Letts and many others say it's about reviving older wheats, so-called heritage varieties. There's no scientific definition of a heritage variety, but the term is generally applied to varieties that existed before the 1950s or 60s, before the so-called Green Revolution. One of the things these varieties have in common is their broad genetic base. It's a sliding scale, but heritage means diversity to me. It has genetic diversity in it still. And they also share certain characteristics. You know, these crops are, are not only dealing with bad weather from year to year, so they need to be resilient, but they're dealing with longer-term climate change. And what's fantastic about these old heritage varieties is that they have massively deep root systems. So they can deal with drought, they can deal with low fertility. They, I think they, they can even pass nutrients between them. You know, they work as a community. And if we want sustainable farming, that's what we need. We need to create a sustainable, resilient, true agroecological ecosystem. So now, all over the country, people are researching and reviving heritage varieties, sowing them out in different places, observing, sharing results, harvesting, milling, testing, tasting, and sowing out again. Scotland the Bread is one of many groups who've been doing this for several years. So we've found grains which were purely as a starting point. This isn't a heritage museum project. Andrew Whitley, co-founder of the Real Bread Campaign and Scotland the Bread. But we found wheat varieties with Scottish names languishing in gene banks around the world from as far apart as the United States and Poland and Russia. We got them together, grew them in an experimental plot and had them tested and found that the ones that had the same name were essentially the same genetics, so we put them all together. The three varieties were Rouge de Cosse, Golden Drop and Hunters. To find them, Andy Forbes of the Brockwell Bake Project in London scoured gene banks around the world, searching for varieties that could have Scottish provenance. He managed to get hold of 13 small samples of seed. They were germinated and planted out on four farms across Scotland. Each year after that, the grain was harvested and re-sown. Those three varieties are now being grown, milled and sold as flour by Scotland the Bread. Significantly, we also found that on average they had a very interesting nutritional profile. It was uneven as it was bound to be because there's lots of perverse effects with soils and climate and all the rest of it. But generally, compared to a control, they had more minerals, key minerals that are important for human nutrition, which you might expect to be present in your bread if you actually bother about these things, which we need to because some people in our population, even now, don't get enough iron, zinc, magnesium in their diet in an assimilable, digestible way. It can sound as though this is almost medicalized when we talk about individual 
minerals and nutrients and bioavailability and so on. But it's also actually about really tasty, lovely food that you want to eat. Scotland the Bread's research into heritage varieties is very much ongoing. The soil-to-slice plot that we heard about at the start of this episode is part of that research. This year, at Belhaven Community Garden, volunteers were growing three Swedish heritage varieties, Ölands, Löden and Dalarna. All over the country and the world, other individuals and groups are also reviving heritage wheat varieties with their diverse genetics. But true resilience requires diversity at all levels. So far, we've talked about diversity within a variety. Could the next step be to recreate populations, allowing varieties to cross-pollinate with each other, abandoning the idea of a specific variety altogether? Going back to the within-crop diversity, what we've been trying to do in this particular project, which we started at the beginning of the decade, is to develop wheat populations in which every plant is different from every other in the crop. These crops, as they develop, as they evolve under their own steam, so to say, gradually become much more uniform, surprisingly uniform in appearance, but they still have within them this immense capacity for variation, for the ability to complement each other, to deal with local differences in the environment. This is the way that we produce the populations initially. I won't go into the detail, but intercrossing a large number of high-yielding and high-quality varieties to produce these populations. What we've been able to find and demonstrate from looking at the performance of these populations uh, that in fact they do demonstrate real resilience in variable environments. They are much better than the, the parents. High yielding varieties crossed with high quality varieties. The YQ population. It's also known as the ORC Wakelands population in reference to the Organic Research Centre which pioneered its development and Wakelands Agroforestry. Martin Wolfe's farm in Suffolk, where a lot of the work took place. Martin Wolfe had a successful career as a plant pathologist before he became disillusioned with mainstream approaches to disease control in crops. He bought Wakelands as a place to explore alternative models, approaches based on growing different crops together, interspersing crops with trees, and generally increasing diversity. YQ was one of the outcomes of that research. Kimberly Bell is the founder of Small Food Bakery in Nottingham. She was introduced to YQ and to Martin Wolf when she was researching ingredients for a sustainably sourced meal. Her collaborator was a keen forager. But one of the things he said to me, which is very provocative, was that I can't make a bread for this meal. He said, wheat bread is never going to be a sustainable food. So he forced me to look for the most sustainable bread wheat that I could find, which took me to Wakelands Agroforestry and initially I went there because I'd heard that they were growing wheat amongst trees and I thought well John's problem with the wheat is that it's typically grown as a monoculture often in you know quite chemical farming systems and so I thought he'll be happy with that if I can say I'm going to get a wheat from an agroforestry system he'll let me have bread on the menu basically. We went to visit Martin, Laura and I, we drove all the way to Suffolk, we spent a day with him, we weren't expecting 
the welcome that we got, we thought we'd probably just be like a little bit of a pain in the bum. We knew he was a little bit famous and like he probably got lots of visitors. But when we got there, he just said something like, I'm so glad you're here. And we were like, oh, really? And he just basically explained that he'd been developing this population wheat for many, many years, 17 or 18 years um, of field trials. And he'd been trying to convince bakers to work with it and no one had, had sort of taken the bait so far. And so, I don't know, Martin had a way of getting people to do things without you really realising that you were going to do it. But I think somehow that day we realised we were going to become ambassadors for that week and we were going to figure out how to bake it. They're a noisy bunch, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, we can go somewhere else. Yeah. What Martin explained to us that day when we visited was really a kind of brief overview of plant breeding. And typically... Crops are bred to serve particular functions within particular agricultural systems. So we've kind of come to this situation where crops are bred for a marketplace instead of bred for the ecology that they need to exist within. To me, it's just a bit forced. And I guess what John was trying to say, my collaborator in putting together this meal, was very much that we need to work much more with nature and that a vast wheat monocrop was not a natural phenomenon. So coming to speak to Martin with that in the back of my mind, when he presented the population, he described it as a genetically diverse population of wheat. And then later explained the, the technicalities of that, which how he came to achieve that was to crossbreed 20 different varieties every which way. So the DNA from every plant was married with every plant. And what that did was create 200 parent plants that he then grew up and planted out in a field. The principle was simply that by having a much broader library of DNA, the, the crop, rather than the plant, would be able to respond to any challenges that it faced while growing. And those challenges could be pathogens, they could be climate-related. But essentially, what Martin hypothesised was that the plants would have enough of a library of tools to be able to cope with any situation that it was put into. And the population wheat was never intended to be a high-yielding wheat. It was just intended to be something that was reliable so that a farmer could not have a crop that failed. And I asked him a question which, for me, illustrates quite well what the population is. If you've planted a field of population wheat, how big does it need to be before you get a replication? So I was interested in the maths of this kind of, like population and he said he thought that if you had two acres of the population you would not find two genetically identical plants and I think that's a really good way of visualizing the sorts of diversity that we're talking about. So yeah it's been pretty exciting to be an ambassador for that crop over the last couple of years and a, a real privilege to spend time with Martin. Mark Lee has an organic mixed farm in Shropshire Along with a wide range of heritage varieties, he's been growing YQ for several years. Martin Wolf introduced the idea that YQ as a population, because of its genetic diversity, would adapt in real time, really, year to year. Not in terms of, of evolution, but it would adapt and change the frequency of different genetics within it. So the most successful elements of it would succeed, dependent on the environment that they're in. And it was really that visualisation of 
evolution but in one crop that was actually happening right in front of us that that if we grew a crop here in Shropshire rather than in in Norfolk or Suffolk it would adapt to Shropshire weather Shropshire conditions the belief there is that if it's continually exposed to those environmental conditions that the frequency of genetics will adapt it would potentially become better certainly more resilient may not perform better but it may perform more reliably which again is the principle of it really and instead of buying in new seed every year the whole logic of populations like yq is that farmers can save and sow their own seed we're into fourth year with the same yq seed and have absolutely no no ambition to have new seed that's the point we always will grow the same and keep growing the same Professor Martin Wolf passed away in the spring of 2019. But it's clear that his legacy is alive and well, quite literally in the fields and figuratively in the hearts and minds of the people who knew him, worked with him and learnt from him. One thing to note, YQ was created by crossing 19 modern wheat varieties plus one slightly older variety, Maris Widgeon. Their parents were genetically uniform. So there wasn't a huge amount of diversity there, but what was there shuffled around. He was building in as much diversity as possible within a modern variety because what he wanted to retain was the short straw, the dwarfing genes. I would rather have seen a composite cross-population incorporating old heritage lines because of the deeper root systems, the taller straw. I think there's some other factors that now, having spoken to Martin just before, that, that's where I think we were all moving. So what we did was I was growing the old populations, he was growing the modern ones, the YQ, and we mixed them together to have the all-time population. So it covers modern increased diversity as well as ancient diversity. You know, it's the same concept. In diversities are a strength, whether it's modern or not. So. I think the modern varieties were selected a lot for yield and maybe less so for flavor and resilience. But in a higher nitrogen environment, YQ would do well because that's where its parents are. But if you mix the two, then you have heritage lines that have flavor and texture and, and resilience from the past. So it kind of makes sense. But in a low input system, I still think those modern varieties that are adapted to high nitrogen fundamentally will gradually disappear. But what he showed was that the key to stability of yield and stability of quality of resilience was diversity. You know, it's what our ancestors did naturally. So I think the YQ is, is a fantastic you know, part of the story going forward. It was blazing a trail in many ways because it also was allowed to be marketed in the EU. So for many reasons, that was fantastic research that we have to take forward. Yes, there's a very important factor that we haven't yet talked about regulation? Well, the current seed system, in order to market, so in order to sell, trade, barter, give away seed of any crop, it has to have passed the tests to be licensed by DEFRA. So it has to be genetically distinct from anything else, genetically uniform, genetically stable. In the UK, if you want to sell seed, that variety has got to be registered on the national list. The list is intended as a quality control, a guarantee for farmers that the seed they're buying is reliable, that it's been tested and approved, that it won't result in a failed harvest. Varieties that make it onto the list are then included in an EU database so they can be marketed across Europe. 
To be approved for inclusion on the national list, a variety must be distinct, uniform and stable. Distinct, meaning it has different characteristics to other varieties. Uniform, meaning all the plants within the variety share those same characteristics. Stable, meaning the variety remains unchanged, even after several generations. In other words, the offspring are the same as the parents, and the parents' parents, and so on. Well, by definition, having a population of any kind means it's not genetically uniform and not genetically stable. I don't want stability. I want genetically unstable, because that's how it adapts. That's what nature does. So there's no way I can market this. What was great about Martin Wolf's work is that he did get a special dispensation for the YQ population to be marketed, but for a specific amount of time. In 2014, the Organic Research Centre persuaded EU officials to grant a derogation, a sort of temporary relaxation of the law. That change allowed seed that doesn't fit the normal rules to be marketed, seed like the YQ population. So could that derogation pave the way for a permanent change in the law? Here's Josiah Meldrum from Hodmadods, a company that sources and supplies sustainably grown pulses and grains from British farms. The amazing thing about the population was that they needed to demonstrate that it could be grown on farms, which meant that the Organic Research Centre and Martin needed to, to be able to trade the seed. And in order to do that, they needed to get a derogation from the European Union to allow them to trade a non-listed seed. Having done that, they set something of a precedent. It's clearly possible. The EU were quite supportive of the whole process. And it's meant that the new organic standard that's being adopted all across Europe at the moment contains a clause which allows for the sale and exchange and trade of heterogeneous, unlisted varieties. It's only organic, but the challenge there, from a policing point of view, is how do you know how someone's going to grow it once they've bought the seed? And I think that it represents a kind of breakdown of that hegemony of the big scale seed companies who, who won't have, we shouldn't say this really, they won't have twigged that this is happening, I suspect. They won't even know that it's written because they're, they're not, it's not on their radar. And it will free up and allow a lot of the kind of networks of exchange that we need to happen to facilitate the creation of this new relocalised grain economies that, that will want these varieties. And so, yeah, I think that's a big thing. So I'm hoping that perhaps Martin's biggest legacy will be the fact that the research work that he was involved with caused this change to have to happen. Is that an opening now that I can drive through the heritage grain sector? We should, because in a sense, you know, the EU and countries around the world are trying to preserve crop genetic diversity and biodiversity. And on the left hand, they're making it illegal to do that by having strict seed legislation. Makes no sense. At the time of recording, we don't yet know for certain whether a post-Brexit UK will adopt these same provisions. But even before the EU derogation, some breeders of diverse seed already had inventive ways of doing their work. My plan, and and quite strategic decision about 10-15 years ago was, I'm going to create a genetically diverse population that's illegal, I can't give it to anybody, but I'm going to make it so popular and spread it around so far that by the time they figure out that I'm doing this and try to stop me, you won't be able to put the rabbit back in the hat. They did call me up to Cambridge. I won't go into detail, but they basically told me I had to stop what I was doing. And I said, I'm not doing anything illegal because I'm growing it. And, and they're saying, well, you can't, you can't grow this diversity. And I said, yes, I can. I just can't sell it or give it to anyone else. Anyway, I, I didn't let them stop me. 
So if they ever do try to stop me, which, you know, it would be insane to do it now because we're clearly in a different period where we have to increase this diversity and they're beginning to recognize it. But um, I thought, well, then I'll take them to the WTO for stopping a viable economic activity. I had a whole bunch of different plans for doing it. Basically, I wanted to provoke them because it's, it's quite clear that we have to move towards more sustainable farming systems. And the basis for that, I think fundamentally, you've got to start with genetic diversity in your crops. If you don't have that, you're going to struggle to have any sort of sustainable, you know, true agroecological system. I think you need good quality seed. You know, I, I planted five acre field and not a seed came up because it was old. I know what that's like. So I'm not against good quality seed. I'm not against, you know, being careful about that. Some of the lessons might be useful, but it's actively discouraging the preservation and use of genetic diversity in order to create varieties that are profitable so that big companies, this is the theory, can reinvest their money into producing new varieties because we need to create these new varieties that are adapted to climate change. Well, no, the way to adapt to climate change is diversity. It's not to stop diversity and then pay a big plant breeding company billions to produce new varieties every year. We're never going to outbreed the rate of climate change. It's coming too quickly. These diseases are evolving quickly. The only hope we have is to have an inbuilt resistance through genetic diversity. So that's what we should be encouraging, not trying to stop it. So if the legislation or the dominant system continues to favour the status quo, distinct, uniform and stable seeds, with progress understood as the constant development of new varieties, which is an undertaking that requires huge levels of financial investment, if that remains the case, could one alternative be a more collaborative model? What we need is populations that are out there that are available for everyone. Well, how do we do that with the legislation? So what we do is we get everyone to come together and we together create a people's population. So there's no exchange then, is there? We've all together co-bred, co-created, you know, participative plant breeding. We've created a population, so no one can say that we've been swapping it around. And part of that creation would be growing the, let's call it the, the mother, the, the proto-population in different parts of the country. So it's then adapting to those local conditions. Then we keep bringing that seed back to a central place and, and growing some of it there. But together, we all create a very, very, very mixed population, the mother of all populations. Then when that's ready, well, the people who are already part of the populations project can grow it and there's no exchange required and they can then supply their local millers and their local bakers, and we're on our way back to recreating local grain economies. We could do that. It would take about five years. It wouldn't take massive amounts of funding, but it would take a bit of a home-based gene bank. So we can recreate this if we all work together, and we better do it soon, because we need this to happen within five or ten years, given the state of the, of the climate. There are a lot of people very interested in this all over the country. There are quite a few groups in Wales moving. There's work going on in Scotland. So if we all work together, I think we can, in a sense, circumvent this legislation that stops the, the spread. But it's also got to be done quite, I think, carefully. One, there's no disease, which can happen in grain, but there are easy ways of treating that. So we need to be clever and maximize the diversity. Maybe it would mean including some YQ into it, but having the most genetically diverse population we could possibly create, farming it out to the areas, bringing it back, and all working together to recreate what our ancestors did naturally. The current seed system is not some evil conspiracy. It does have, or it did have, a logical basis. It's supposed to protect farmers, 
to give them confidence in the seeds they're buying. And the royalty system associated with it is meant to support innovation, to make sure that breeders are rewarded for their work, that it isn't stolen, and that they can invest resources back into breeding the next new variety. But that logic is outdated at the very least. It's clear that the current approach is no longer fit for purpose. If there's just one conclusion we'd like you to take away from this episode, it's that any vision we have of a sustainable, resilient, healthy future has to be underpinned by diversity. Whether that's in the genetics of our cereals, in the life present in the field and on the farm, or, crucially, in the range of people who control access to the seeds we rely on to feed ourselves. And whereas the current legislation and the mainstream model of seed breeding concentrates power in the hands of a few large companies, heritage varieties and populations instead disperse that power to the hands of farmers, activists, bakers, and in fact, all of us. Diversity, autonomy, resilience. We'll return to these interconnected themes in the next episode when we'll be meeting cereal farmers. For now, here's Professor Martin Wolf again to sum things up with a quote from a certain Mr. Charles Darwin. I'll leave the last word to the man that started it all. I use this quite often. I just love the wording. So, in the general economy of any land, the more widely and perfectly the animals and plants are diversified for different habits of life, so will a greater number of individuals be capable of their supporting themselves. QED. <laughs> Thank you very much. Serial is possible thanks to generous support from the Roddick Foundation. Subscribe to Farmerama to hear the rest of the series. You can find us on your favourite podcast app, on SoundCloud or at farmerama.co. If you enjoy the series, please spread the word. And if you'd like to support Farmerama, visit patreon.com forward slash farmerama. Serial is produced and edited by me, Katie Revel, with Abby Rose and Joe Barrett. Susie McCarthy and Hannah Sutherland also worked on the series. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett. A huge personal thank you to everyone who's contributed to Serial. In this episode, we heard from Rupert Dunn, John Letts, Kimberly Bell, Mark Lee, Josiah Meldrum, and Professor Martin Wolfe. As well as the voices you've heard in this episode, many more conversations have helped to shape this series. Thank you also to the Oxford Real Farming Conference for that archive recording of Martin Wolfe.